So have you ever been confronted with something? You ever been confronted or accused of doing something wrong? It's not a good feeling to be accused of doing something wrong, whether you did or whether you didn't. Even if you didn't do that thing, generally what you will fall into is a defensive disposition. You're pushing back against the person who is accusing you of the wrongdoing. We can become evasive and elusive, trying to squirm our way around the truth, looking for loopholes that will potentially save us if we find ourselves in wrong. But there can be those moments that we're confronted with our sin that can change everything. And when you're confronted with your sin, there is a exposition that happens of that moment. And if we're humble and remorseful about the things that we're rightly accused of, then it can lead to a new depth of understanding of who God is, a new reflection, and ultimately a sanctification process can set in within our hearts and minds. Today we're beginning this new series called Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal. And in this series, we're going to walk right all the way up to Holy Week, very special time in the Christian calendar, and we're going to be looking at the life of King David and a very particular, very real sin um, that David found himself in, or I should say a series of sins that David found himself in, and we're going to contrast that with his confession in Psalm 51. And so today I'm going to begin in a text, but for the remainder of this series, we will be looking through Psalm 51. Before we move into Psalm 51 and David's prayer of confession, we're going to look today at the why. Why did he end up doing that? And so we'll be in 2 Samuel, uh, and so I'll talk a lot about chapter 11, but we'll mainly dive into chapter 12. It's a tragic story of his downfall, his downfall into to gross sin, and it brings a reproach even upon his entire family. And so Scripture tells us that David, at this point, as we look into chapter 11, David should have been at war. He's the king, and his people are at war, but he's at home. He's safe. He's in his castle. He's in his palace. And as he's in his palace, he is out of place. And as he is out of place, he looks across over the city, and what does he see? But he sees a beautiful woman who happens to be bathing on her rooftop, that the position of the palace allows him to have the elevated experience over the entire city. And so he's looking, and he sees, he sees something. Now, this may not have been an abnormal situation with her uh, bathing on the rooftop, but what would have been an abnormal situation is the leering and the staying and the staring that he would have committed into. So as he's looking and leering, he's filling with lust for her and his desire for her. And him being king, he has the opportunity to actually put some things into motion. And so he calls for her. He sends for her. And when he sends for her, even though those who probably went to get her knew what was going to happen, they still went along with it anyways because it's the king. When the king asks you to do something, you don't refuse. So sometime after this sexual encounter that he has with this woman, Bathsheba, who was a married woman, she comes back to him and she, notice, she, she notifies him that she is pregnant. And while she notifies him that she is pregnant, David starts to hatch a plan because this child is going to be noticed that something happened. 
Her husband has been away at the, at the front lines fighting for me. And so I have to figure out a way to cover this whole thing up. And as he begins the process of covering the whole thing up, he says, go get her husband. Bring him from the front lines and bring him here. Go get Uriah. And so they go get Uriah and they bring him back to the palace. And he has a dinner with him and he says, now go home and I want you just to enjoy. You've been doing a great job. Go home and spend time with your wife. Thinking that if he spends time with his wife, he'll be able to cover up the pregnancy. But Uriah is a man of honor, and he knows that when his men are out there on the field in a form of solidarity, solidarity, he says, I can't even go home. My men can't go home. So Uriah actually sleeps in the doorway of the palace. He won't go home. He won't spend time with his wife. And when David finds out that he's not doing this, that his, his trap, his, his uh, cover-up is not happening, he gives Uriah a letter. And he, he tells Uriah, take this to your commander when you get back. Don't open it, but just give it to your commander when you get back. Uriah doesn't realize that he's carrying his execution order. David gives Uriah a sheet of paper that he's giving to his commander, and the command, he's telling the commander that when Uriah is up at the front, pull everyone back and leave him alone, alone to die. The commander follows this order. When the commander follows this order, Uriah is killed. He's not killed in battle. He's murdered. He was sent to die. But what's interesting here is that it actually starts to look like David is going to get away with it because now Uriah is dead. And what he does is he goes and he sins for Bathsheba again. And when he sins for Bathsheba, he marries her and makes her his wife and brings her into the harem, and now David is going to get away with everything. So it would seem. When you have a position of power or when you find yourself getting away with sin, you can get into this mindset that you will not be caught, you will not be confronted by your sin. But God does not leave sin alone. But oftentimes what we find is that God has to step in and confront us and reveal our sin. The Lord confronts our sin so that we can experience renewal or that we can experience sanctification. Now, whenever you hear renewal, I want you to hear the older phrase, sanctification. I want you to understand that it's, it's a process that you go through. It's a process of development, and we'll talk about that throughout this series. So why is confrontation for renewal needed? Wouldn't it be easier if we just figured it out on our own. I'm not sure about you, but how often do we just figure it out on our own? How often do we just decide that I'm gonna rip the Band-Aid off and expose the sin that I have been committing? How often do we go to a friend and say, oh, I have been lying to you for the last 12 years? How often do we go to a spouse and say that I've been cheating on you? Most of the time, it has to be exposed and brought to you. We are blind to our own sin quite often. We begin to cover up things in our life, so much so that we even begin to believe it ourselves. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses number 1 through verse 6, and it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Chapter 12 continues the drama of, of David's life as his life is, is, is experiencing moral collapse. David's sin and coveting and adultery, murder, all of these things that are unveiled in chapter 11, it starts to come to a head right now. David does a lot of sending. Early on, David is sending for Joab, sending for Bathsheba, sending for Uriah. He's sending messengers. He's, he's doing all of these things, but what we see here is a little bit of a turn. We see a turn in that Nathan is now sent, but he is sent by God. And Nathan comes to David with the confrontation of his sins, but he addresses David indirectly. He starts to speak to him in a, in a, in a very keen way that is hinting and alluding to a few things in the way that he would have said it. In verses uh, 1 through 4, a parable, it seems more likely that Nathan is presenting this legal case my king, there's something I need you to consider, potentially judge upon. The story presents as a rich man who had many flocks and herds uh, taking a singular lamb from a neighbor uh, or a poor man. Nathan's precision in telling the story it should have clued David in that he was pointing the finger at him. One big clue would have been that he had loved this lamb like a daughter, and it would have pointed in Hebrew to the word bat, as in the name of Bathsheba. And David is starting to get enraged with the things that are going on, and a traveler comes, he says, a traveler comes to visit the rich man, but the rich man has no interest in taking from his own wealth in abundance to host the traveler. And he kills the poor man's lamb to feed his own guest. David emotionally responds, and as David emotionally responds, he, he gets upset, and he's evoking exactly what Nathan wanted him to do. He wanted him to feel that righteous indignation and was upset that this man had no pity. He had no pity. Part of that reflects back to Exodus 22 and 1. In Exodus 22 and 1, it's an accusation where God is saying that his people had no pity. Their sin is there. The irony is this presentation by Nathan to David is exactly what David has done to Uriah and Bathsheba. There was no pity in David's heart in having murdered Uriah, her husband. There's no pity that he has taken this woman as his own. There is no pity in that he has abused his own power. There is no pity in what David is doing. And God is calling that out in him. David has some pretty major blind spots here. He has some pretty big 
things in his particular character that he's overlooking, very similarly to, I don't know when you got your driver's license, but I got my driver's license when I was 16. And I remember going through driver's training, and this is pre-video cameras and stuff on cars, and so you actually had to turn your head and look. And, you know, there were some folks who did the whole, you know, put the arm around, look backwards and drive like that. But what your teachers instruct you to do is to make sure that you mind your blind spots while you're driving, to pay attention to them, because in your blind spots, there could be hazards. And what we see here is David has this pretty major blind spot, and it ends up hurting himself, that David is a man who really feels like there should be justice and there should be order and we should be following the things of the Lord, except as it comes to his kingship, except as it comes to his conduct. He is overlooking those things. This is why God gives us brothers and sisters in the church to help point out those things. I know we don't like that, do we? To point out those blind spots. But God is sending Nathan to David as his active, gracious, loving pursuit of this king. The pursuit of this king's heart. He couldn't allow his chosen king to continue on in this path. He had to break him of this situation. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have somebody in your life who you are allowing to come into your life and to point out your blind spots? To tell you the truth of God? To tell you when you are falling out of alignment with what God has called you to do in your life? Do you have a Nathan that calls out pride and anger covetousness and idolatry. Well, Proverbs 27 and 6 encourages, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need friends who will push back at us. We need friends who will hold us when we're desiring to go and do the wrong things. Something that uh, was mentioned in my wedding uh, that I decided to utilize in wedding ceremonies that I have performed um, is the statement and a charge to a community, charge to the watching community, that should he or should she end up on your couch one night fleeing from an argument or a situation with their husband or wife, send them home. Do not allow them to sit on your couch. Do not allow them to stay that night. Now, this is not in the sense of fleeing uh, for someone's life or for someone's safety, but this is fleeing because we decided that we just, can't, we just can't reconcile this conversation right now. And I don't want to be around you. I can't stand your face right now. And so I'm going to go to my mom's house. I'm going to go to my cousin's house. I'm going to go to my friend's house. A protective friend would say, I love your marriage more. And so I'm going to send you home. I'm going to send you home. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you so that this can be resolved, resolving those issues. You have to have friends who are pushing back at you because our desire is going to be for comfort. Our desire is going to be to move on. But the Lord confronts our sins so that we can experience renewal or sanctification because we are blind to it. And the Lord confronts our sin because we have despised the word of the Lord. Have you ever despised the word of the Lord? Maybe not intentionally, but value-wise, maybe you have. Maybe I have. So the, what we see here in, chapter, in verse number 7 is this. Nathan begins to speak to David after he has finally got to this brewing point and kindled with anger. 
And Nathan says, and because he had no pity, and Nathan responds back to him, you are that man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife as your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and you shall lie with your wives uh, and he shall lie with your wives in the, in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. There's a moment of truth that Nathan's response to David's anger and pursuit of justice against this rich man calls him to declare, you are that man. He saw it finally in him that you know sin is wrong. And not only do you know sin is wrong, now what you need to know is that your sin is wrong. And through Nathan, God delivers this judgment. God states that David's sin was, the, uh, was that he despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. He was disregarding everything that he knew. He was disregarding everything that he had seen. At this point, David had relied on, on God for so many things. At this point, he has already fought Goliath. He has already fought the lion. He has fought the bear. He has actually been pursued by Saul. He, was, he has trusted the Lord through so many different things. And then we come to this point where he's a comfortable king. And now he has set aside the things of the Lord. He has set aside the desires of the Lord. The tragedy in this scene cannot be understated, but God has given David everything, and he would have given him more. How often does that penetrate us? And when you look at all the things that God has given us, but yet we clamor for more, we clamor for extra, we clamor for the things that our friends and our neighbors have, even though God has given us so much, David had all that he needed and could, could desire. God had been overwhelmingly kind to him, but he treated it like trash. He treated God's hand and God's word like trash. It had no value or importance to him in his life. And so God states his judgment and his consequences to David's sin. Violence and the sword would be with him. And if you continue on to read through uh, Samuel and into Kings and Chronicles, you begin to see how these things begin to play out in David's children and in David's life. It's, it's actually pretty bad. It's pretty bad, and it stems from a moment like this. It stems from a moment of, I disregarded the Lord and pursued my own sin. And God's punishment did step in. God's judgment did step in. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, because his judgment does not always relent. But we're going to see something in just a minute that is very special in understanding that even when judgment doesn't relent, God is still gracious. He is still pursuing you. How often do we treat these things of great value 
and worth, but we don't treat it as such. When we consider in 1986, a Chernobyl nuclear reactor was being built, being brought online, and it was being tested, and as it was being tested, there were some particular warning signs that were going up because there were some design flaws um, in it. But what was being ignored were some of the warning signs, some of the lights flashing, and they assumed that some of it was because they were in the process of testing. And what ended up happening was there was a fire that erupted, and in that fire and explosion, it began to send off radioactive material out into the atmosphere. Such a horrible, horrible catastrophe. But in that catastrophe, what was overlooked were the warning signs. It didn't have to be that way if, you, if they would have just paid attention to the warning signs, if they would have just paid attention to the design flaws and, overlooked it and looked at it over and over again until they made sure that everything was done properly, if they would have paid special attention to the directives, if they would have paid special attention to the warning signs, there wouldn't be a place that you couldn't walk into without a hazmat suit. I watched videos of this where there's playgrounds and schools and houses and cars still in the streets. There's no one around. It is the eeriest ghost town. But you start hearing the Geiger counter registering the whole way, the whole way they're walking through it. And all of this could have been prevented. This city could have been a great city. The people had, the people died. Those who were closest to the reactor died. There was a fallout to this particular mistake. Is there fallout in your life? Is there fallout to the sin that you refuse to acknowledge in your life? Now, trust me when I say this sin that you refuse to acknowledge in your life, trust me, there are fingers that point back at me in that. Is there fallout to sin that I have chosen to disregard? See, we live this life as if things that I do have no effect on anyone else. We live this life as if there are things called secret sins. Now, David thought that he was living this secret sin, and in the process of living out this secret sin, there were many people who began to fall because of it. And what David didn't understand is that even in the process of that judgment, even his future generations would feel the effects of this would feel the effects of him turning away from the Lord. This is why God confronts us in order to renew us, in order to take us through a process of sanctification. He's working to make sure that we don't despise or disregard what is greatest in the world, him. But yet we do. Our disregard and his ways, for his ways, it's creating a catastrophe within our life. It's important to note that God told David the sin in secret will be exposed in the light. God will expose our sin. You might find yourself thinking that I'm getting away with it or find yourself feeling like no one's going to know or it's not going to harm anyone. God will reveal that sin. Consider how this whole thing started, his secret sin with Bathsheba. And she came to expose this to him. But he didn't heed that particular warning. He didn't heed that particular warning and go to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned. He continued on in the process of his cover-up. 
because he thought everything was done in secret. God confronts us and our sin because we're blind and because we have despised him, but he also confronts our sin because the Lord will forgive our sin. See, now somewhere in between there, we often fall into this pattern of, of condemnation. That once you realize this thing, once you realize that your sin is so heavy, you fall into this mindset of, I can't be saved. Nothing can change. I can't go further. I can't go to the Lord anymore. And then you turn your life away from the Lord. But God will confront our sin and he will bring it out, particularly because he is strong enough, because he is loving enough, because he is merciful enough to be able to forgive us and receive us again. There is nothing outside of his hand that he can't make right, that he can't make whole. And so he will expose you not out of hatred for you. He will expose you not so that damnation can come upon you, but he will expose you so that you can turn to him, so that you can find yourselves in his arms. So what do we see in chapter 12, verse number 13? And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David's response is simple. It's honest. He knows exactly the weight that he's carrying. There is almost even, I would assume, a relief. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against the Lord. And his confession, Nathan is direct. It was me. He sinned against God. Now he is realigning himself. Now he's pulling himself back to where he should have been this whole time. David takes his courage in both hands and face and fesses up to the fact that he is without excuse and has incurred the death penalty. He knows what's going to come after this. After the egregious thing that he's done, he knows that he is deserving of death. And that's why Nathan comforts him with the words, but you shall not die but you shall not die. You are deserving of it, but you shall not die. Now here's the reality of all of this, is that this term put away that Nathan uses regarding David's sin and regarding his, his, his punishment, that you will not be put away. What he's do, using is the same terminology as the Passover. It will be passed over you. This death will be passed over you, reminiscent of in the Exodus when the death angel passed over the house of Israel, which is why there's still a celebration of Passover, which is as we come close to this time of Easter, which is a time of Passover, where we don't have to experience this brokenness. We don't have to experience this death if there is confession of sin. God in his, design, in his divine forbearance passed over the sin of David and his death penalty. God's forgiveness of David was not a matter of overlooking or, ignoring, uh, or ignoring justice. Justice was served. And justice ended up being served for all of us in Christ on the cross. And we may find ourselves engrossed in a tremendous amount of sin, in a tremendous amount of deception, in a tremendous amount of disregard for the Lord and his word, but he still offers forgiveness. Oh, how gracious and merciful is he. I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that God is this unjust God or God is even this vengeful God. He is not. He is a God who is full of mercy. He is a God who is full of joy. He is a God who is full of love. And one of the things that he recognizes is that exposure 
will allow you to breathe again. Exposure will allow you to move again. This is the basis for our forgiveness. Anyone who acknowledges and confesses their sin to God are forgiven on the basis of Christ's death on the cross in their place. David's confession of, I have sinned against the Lord. Is that your confession? Is that my confession? I have sinned against the Lord. I've turned my heart against you. Maybe you're not sure of God's kindness and love for you. You may know, maybe having a hard time believing that God would forgive someone like you. But if he could forgive Moses, if he could forgive David, if he could forgive Paul, some of the names that we utilize as high character, high uh, lovers of God. Moses killed a man. Moses disobeyed God. But Moses was God's man. David killed a man, committed adultery, but yet God stood with him and allowed him to repent. Paul was a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of Christians, authorized the killing and the capture and imprisonment of those first early believers of Christ. But yet he saw within his merciful heart to go after this man and show him a love that would bring him in. And when Paul would say, I am the chief among sinners, but all of that gets washed away at the cross. You just know that Exodus 34 and 6 says it like this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. His fundamental nature is to be merciful. His fundamental nature is to be gracious and to forgive sin. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter where you are, but what it does require of us, it requires a confession. Consider what it takes to become a Christian. For those of you who may be questioning, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I enter into this relationship with God? Well, it takes a belief in your heart that he is. It takes a belief that his sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, was good enough to atone for whatever issues you had. It takes that belief that he resurrected and that he is God. But it also takes a confession of the mouth that you are my Lord, that he is my Lord. There is no walking with Christ without confession. It has to be a fundamental part of who we are. And I've walked with the Lord long enough to know that just because you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, it does not mean that you will stop confessing. But it is the privilege that we have that we can come to our Savior day after day and choose that we will follow him. And how do we choose to follow him? By not disregarding his word and living our own life and living for our own glory, for our own goodness. But we say, Lord, I want to live for you. This is my confession. Have you heard these words? Do you feel pardoned in your life? I know the life that I lived before I became a Christian. And that life that I lived before I became a Christian, I hold it before me to remind myself that without God, without Christ, who am I? I'm a hurt, vengeful person. That's who, I'm, who I am without Christ. 
but he has shown me so much grace and so much mercy. And my desire is to be like him, to show grace and to show mercy. So my prayer for you, my prayer for you is that you find this time to confess. That you either take it here, you take it at home, you take it in your car, that you call out to God. You have this opportunity to call out to him even now. You don't have to wait until your sin is exposed, but trust me, because it's not exposed yet does not mean it won't be. David thought he got away with it. He continued to rule. He continued to do things the way that he always did. And one day, Nathan walked into his court, and he said, God has seen you, and God has judged, and you are that man. And his life was forever changed.